Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 29th of November, 2023, just after one, one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Charles Mallet. Welcome to the programme. First time in the studio, Charles. Thank you very much, Mike. Good afternoon to you all. And uh, Vanessa joining us uh, uh, from Damas Damascus, sorry, uh, as usual. So uh, we will uh, get straight on, Vanessa, then. This is the 29th of November, as I've just said, and that means it is International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. Yep, so I thought that was worth reminding people of, um, at least if you can fly a Palestinian flag from somewhere on your apartment or house, that would be really cool. So I was just going to cover a number of things to give a, a kind of general summary of what's going on. Of course, we've been seeing the hostage and uh, prisoner release um, by uh, Israel and by uh, Hamas. Uh, this is, I think, figures from Euromed Monitor, uh, day 49, 20,031 dead, 18,690 civilians, 4,112 women, and of course, the, the awful figure of 8,176 children and bodies still being found uh, during the ceasefire, which I believe is that may, of course, be extended. So I'm going to focus on a couple of reports, first of all, from uh, Euromed Human Rights Monitor. I do recommend that people follow them. They're producing new reports on an almost daily basis. So this one caught my eye. International Committee must investigate Israel's holding of dead bodies in Gaza. So what's this about? Bearing in mind that the White Helmet organization established by MI6 and CIA inside Syria to work alongside Al-Qaeda has also not only been supported by Israel, but has been accused of um, organ trafficking um, amongst uh, the Syrian civilian captives. Um, so Euromed Monitor has documented the Israeli army's confiscation of dozens of dead bodies from Al-Shifa medical complex and the Indonesian uh, hospital in the northern Gaza Strip and others from the vicinity of the so-called safe corridor, Salah al-Din Road, designated for displaced people heading to the central and southern parts of the Strip. Of course, those people were regularly bombed, shelled and shot um, by the uh, Israeli forces. According to Euromed Monitor, the Israeli army also dug up and confiscated the bodies from a mass grave that was established more than 10 days ago in one of the Al-Shifa medical complex's courtyard. So what does Euromed Monitor suspect is going on? They continue in the report. You can read the full report, obviously. Um, medical staff in Gaza found evidence of organ theft in bodies returned by the IOF. Israel, of course, has a long history of holding onto the bodies of dead Palestinians, including children. Euromed monitors said, as it holds the remains of at least 145 Palestinians in its morgues and approximately 255 in its numbers cemetery, which is near the Jordanian border and off limits to the public, in addition to 75 missing people who have not even been identified by Israel. Um, added to that, Euromed Monitor also reported on okay, the okay. horrific scenes in unfolding in UN-run shelters for uh, displaced people in Gaza, which is the next slide, Mike. Sorry. Um, the, the accusation, actually, that is coming from Euromed Monitor is quite interesting. It's basically intimating that organizations like the UN agencies, particularly UNRWA, 
um, and uh, the Red Cross uh, all have a responsibility and, and are considered to some degree to be complicit with the Israeli agenda to ethnically cleanse uh, Gaza. Why? Because they basically um, evacuated all of their centers in the north and central Gaza, leaving people stranded and living in appalling um, conditions. Now, I also wanted to look at Elon Musk's uh, recent visit to Israel in the last few days, how it's being reported in Israeli media, particularly what is considered kind of left-wing media. Uh, Israel's repulsive embrace of Elon Musk is a cynical portrayal of Jews dead and alive. They're referring to the fact that they believe that he doesn't censor Twitter enough for uh, pro-Palestinian voices. Uh, Hamas actually invited Elon Musk uh, to come to Gaza as part of his visit. Hamas senior official Osama Hamdan invited U.S. billionaire Elon Musk on Tuesday to visit Gaza to, the, to see the extent of destruction caused by the Israeli offensive. There was also a fairly extensive um, Twitter or X uh, media campaign ongoing to try and persuade Musk to go to Gaza. I also wanted to point out um, that he has kind of slightly pushed back against pro-Palestinian uh, tweets saying, as I said earlier mm -hmm. this week, decolonization or from the river to the sea and similar euphemism necessarily imply genocide. Interesting statement from Musk. Clear calls for extreme violence are against our terms of service and will result in suspension. But who started the term from river to the nation. It seemed to confront Israel's version of from the river to the sea. And of course, this was actually put out by the Likud party platform in 1977, the time when the settlements were being established basically by Ariel Shimon uh, um, to, to, um, <clears throat> uh, to basically prevent the establishment of any Palestinian state um, then or in the future, and the statement was, the right of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is eternal and indisputable. Therefore, Judea and Samaria will not be handed to any foreign administration. Between the sea and the Jordan, there will be only Israeli sovereignty. So perhaps just a little bit of context for Elon Musk there. And what I will end with was a very short clip of Elon Musk's statement <clears throat> after his meeting with Netanyahu and various officials and his visit to the alleged site of the Hamas atrocities. If you can roll that. It was uh, certainly been um, a day, I would say an emotionally difficult day uh, to see the places where people were murdered. I just did a talk with the, pr the Prime Minister and um, I think there's I mean, obviously, there are three things that need to happen in the Gaza situation. I mean, there's no choice but to kill those who insist on murdering civilians. There's no exactly. choice. Um, they're not going to change their mind. But And then the second thing is to change the, the education so that a new generation of, of murderers is not trained to be murderers. And then, the, and then the third thing, which is also very important, is to try to build prosperity. 
So basically kill them. And once you've killed as many as possible, you should reprogram those that are left. And then you should benefit from the prosperity uh, of the resources uh, belonging to Gaza and to Palestine, which I will come on to in more detail in my next section. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Vanessa. Now, Charles, uh, coming back to the UK, but a related topic, what's going on with uh, fundraising for Gaza? Well, Mike, thanks. As you say, a related topic. And I will deal with the humanitarian response. We've heard a lot about military action, but not so much about the humanitarian response, plenty about the disaster side of it, but not necessarily what's happening and where the money might be coming from and going to. So to set the scene, the Disasters Emergency Committee, which you may be aware of, uh, is essentially a coordinating facility for 15 other British-based charities, and it makes sure that it concerts the effort together in order to put forward an appeal for a specific cause. So just a bit of context, we'll look at an appeal they ran in 2014 for Gaza. So what, though, is the situation now? Are they doing anything with regards to Gaza? And it appears not. They say that they're deeply concerned for the safety and well-being of civilians and that they're closely monitoring the rapid deteriorate, rapidly de deteriorating humanitarian situation. So they have criteria for launching a DEC appeal. So what we'll do is we'll just have a look at the criteria that they use. And these three are, the disaster must be on such a scale and of such urgency as to call for swift international humanitarian assistance. Well, that certainly seems to be fulfilled. The member charities, or some of them, must be in a position to provide effective and swift humanitarian assistance at a scale to justify a national appeal. We'll come back to that. And thirdly, there must be reasonable grounds for concluding that a public appeal would be successful. So in a sense, what is the mood of the public? Now, what is notable here is that of the 15 charities that the DEC coordinates, 13 of them have in fact launched appeals. So either they conclude that they are able to deliver aid on the ground or that there is sufficient public support or both. So just to get an idea of that, we'll have a look at the Red Cross, first of all, who say of the current situation that more than 10,000 people, including children, have been killed in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory and over 30,000 injured. That sets the scene for them to go on and launch their own appeal to invite people to help provide vital aid and to donate it now. Uh, and then another DEC charity, which is Oxfam, has its own crisis appeal. So that's the, that's the charity side of it. And in a sense, they are giving the impression that they believe they are able to deliver aid. We'll then look at the British government and see what they have to say, which again is in actual fact to say that they also believe that they can deliver the aid. They've committed £10 million in humanitarian aid for civilians in the occupied Palestinian territories. Although critically within the text that they put underneath that, they say that all UK aid funding to the OPTs undergoes rigorous oversight and no funding goes to Hamas. Well, they state that with some certainty, and that is something that we will come back to. 
Now, for many viewers and listeners, this might not mean very much in the context of the overall workings of the DEC. So just to set the scene for contemporary appeals, I thought we'd take a look at Ukraine and see what exactly has been happening there. So the first and very immediate comparison to make, not that I would seek to overlay one situation on top of the other, because I don't think that's a fair thing to do. But the DEC launched an appeal in Ukraine one week after the conflict began. Of course, it's now eight weeks since the current escalation of the situation in the Middle East. Um, critical from the Ukraine appeal is the detail that 47% of expenditure was on direct cash payments to aid recipients. So assuming that to be an approximate figure for charities engaging in such activities, it's a wonder that the government can say that they can be certain that no money at all will go to Hamas or indeed to anywhere that it's not intended. So into the detail of the humanitarian appeal in Ukraine, outlined in the red text there, you can just see that the the figures for Ukraine are well above those of any of the other appeals running concurrently. The other thing to point out is that whilst the Charity Commission, which oversees all of this, is very strong on regulatory detail with regard to fundraising, it gives very little guidance on how that money may be spent. And the industry statistics suggest that in the region of 60 to 70 percent of overall funds are spent on charitable activities, which leaves, of course, a significant amount of money to be spent not on charitable activities. And just to highlight the point, I'll finish off with a news story put on by the Daily Mail from this week, which shows that Oxfam have spent £340,000 a year on one member of staff which is quite eye-watering and should give people pause for thought. First of all, in light of that fact, the loose amount of regulation surrounding this and also the fact that there is very little detail on exactly where this money does go, particularly in, with so much of it being uh, spent in cash assistance. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this in extra because I'm quite sure Vanessa will have, will have some comments Absolutely. on it. Uh, let's let's move on and thank you both for that uh, and we'll move on to censorship and well the term is censorship industrial complex or disinformation industrial complex depending on your point of view uh, and the UK has uh, some additional information has come out on the, the way that censorship is, has been implemented globally but, by, uh, but particularly in the UK. Uh, so just just remind ourselves about the uh, what I call the government censorship network this graphic we've been using for a few years now. Uh, which basically shows the just a little bit of the infrastructure that the UK has already set up on this. Uh, we've got all the intelligence agencies on the left-hand side there, GCHQ, MI5, MI6, uh, the Joint Biosecurity Centre. And on the right-hand side, under the Cabinet Office, we have a number of other organisations. For example, the Cabinet Office's Rapid, Rapid Response Unit, which is uh, about countering disinformation. Uh, the National Security Communications Team, 77th Brigade, we already know about. Uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office's Counter Disinformation and Media Development Unit, uh, and the uh, DCMS, the Department of Culture, Media and Sports Counter Disinformation Unit, and the FY uh, Clearinghouse. That we've talked about these in the past, but the Counter Disinformation Unit that's within the Department for Culture, Media and Sport has now uh, changed its name. It's now called the National Security Online Information Team. 
uh, to go alongside the National Security Communications team. Uh, and this uh, name change came to light following a parliamentary question by David Davis uh, and uh, an answer uh, by John Whittingdale. So let's bring him on screen. Uh, and he had this to say. I just want to run through his, his answer here because there's a few very key points. Uh, the counter disinformation unit now called the National Security Online Information Team, he says, is focused exclusively on risks to national security and public safety. So it's not just about national security at all. It's also about what he describes as public safety. That's pretty much undefined uh, at this point. Uh, he goes on to say, preserving freedom of expression is an extremely important principle underpinning the team's work. Uh, the government believes that people must be allowed to discuss and debate issues freely. He lies. We'll come on to explain why I say he lies in, as we go on here. Uh, the team does not monitor the social media accounts of individuals and does not take any action that could impact anyone's ability to discuss and debate issues freely, he said in the parliamentary statement. But of course, this is a statement, we'll come on to this in a little bit, this is a statement that the government made about 77 Brigade until such times as it turned out. Uh, 77 Brigade was in fact monitoring the social media accounts of individuals, including parliamentarians. But don't worry, because Whittingdale went on to say in his parliamentary answer that when uh, NSOIT identifies content which is within one of the areas of focus, ministers have agreed uh, it's assessed to pose a uh, sorry is assessed to pose a risk to national security or public safety, uh, and which is assessed to breach the terms and conditions of the relevant platform. It may share that content with the platform. In other words, it will inform the platform that a particular tweet or post has gone up. Uh, no action is mandated by the government. He lies. Uh, it is entirely up to the platform to determine whether or not to take any action in line with the terms of service. So let's just look at uh, whether he's telling the truth. And I've uh, absolutely accused him of lying to Parliament on this. And the reason is this, uh, as everybody will know by now, the Online Safety Bill is now an Online Safety Act. It is now law. Uh, and it, it was very clear uh, within the bill and now the act that online platforms are required to enforce the promises social media platforms make to users when they sign up through terms and conditions. So if he is alleging that the government is not mandating uh, that, that uh, online platforms take action when the government informs uh, online platforms of uh, tweets or otherwise that they believe breaks the terms and conditions, then that's simply untrue. Uh, he went on to say this, under no circumstances is content from parliamentarians or journalists ever referred to platforms. Um, and uh, well, as I say, I don't think we can believe that either because 77 Brigade uh, the 77 Brigade case demonstrated that uh, that they lied in that circumstance. Uh, is there any reason to believe them in this one? But the reason I highlighted or journalists, of course, there was because the other aspect of the Online Safety Act uh, is that only certain people uh, providing a journalist function are considered to be journalists by that in the sense that uh, you will have to be regulated by uh, Ofcom if you want to be considered uh, a journalist and have your uh, content protected by the Act. Um, so, uh, j just to remind everybody of the 77 Brigade situation, uh, this was January this year, uh, and of course, uh, Ben Wallace, uh, uh, following a, a question by David Davis again, had said that he was going to investigate the situation of 77 Brigade uh, spying domestically, uh, which is something that government and 77 Brigade had always denied. Naturally, here we are, uh, 10 months later, and there's been no result of that investigation ever published, and we're not even clear 
whether that investigation happened in fact. Um, so who's in charge of this new group, or this newly rebranded group, I should say, because it has been in existence for a few years. It is this uh, gent, uh, Saqib uh, Bati. Uh, he's a Conservative MP for Meriden uh, and has been an MP continuously since the 12th of December 2019. He currently holds the government post of Parliamentary Under Secretary of State in the Department for Science, Te uh, Innovation and Technology. Uh, and these are just four of his, I'll just bring four of his uh, responsibilities on screen. First of all, online safety policy, including the National Security Online Information Team, which is what we're talking about here. Uh, the digital regulation, including the Digital Markets uh, Competition and Consumers Bill and the Digital Markets Unit. Uh, and then he's also responsible for digital identity policy. And he's also responsible for supporting the delivery of the government's AI program in the House of Commons, including the AI Safety Institute. So this is the person you need to communicate with if you want to discuss uh, censorship, uh, particularly this, or at least this particular aspect of it. Uh, but let's uh, bring this on from Substack. Um, this is uh, written by Michael Schellenberger, Alex uh, Gutentag and uh, Matt Taibbi, and it's entitled CTIL Files Number One, US and UK military contractors created sweeping plan for global censorship in 2018, new documents show. show. So they're highlighting a, a, a whistleblower and a tranche of documents uh, describing the activities of what they call anti-disinformation group called the Cyber Threat Intelligence League or CTIL. Uh, and this was uh, brought about following uh, comms with the UK government, the US government, and the Department for Homeland Security in the United States. Uh, and I just want to bring this quote up from the article. Now a large uh, trove of new documents, including strategy documents, training videos, presentations, and internal messages reveal that in 2019, US and UK military and intelligence contractors led by a former UK defense researcher, Sarah Jane Turp, uh, developed the sweeping censorship framework. These contractors co-led CTIL, uh, which partnered with CISA in the spring of 2020. In truth, the building of the censorship industrial complex began even earlier in 2018. Uh, and they, so basically they're highlighting this lady, Sarah Jane Terp. So let's bring her on screen. This is her LinkedIn profile. She said she works on the intersection of data science, cybersecurity, and people. And her technical background includes cognitive security, information fusion, crowdsourcing, unmanned systems, including human machine learning. Uh, teaming, sorry, uh, data governance, nation state development, and crisis response. So that's quite a wide ranging uh, scope there. But th there you go. Let's bring up a different CV. This is from the Stimson website. Uh, SJ is an independent consultant applying information security practices to disinformation and other online harms. Her current focus is on risk management for cognitive and cybersecurity. Most recently, she taught at the University of Maryland iSchool and built research and tools that include the disarm disinformation data sharing frameworks for running and operating cognitive security operation centers. So this is the key uh, mind behind the disinformation uh, industrial censorship industrial complex in the UK. It has been exported to other countries uh, and so on. So uh, uh, also on this topic, just to finish off, uh, there's a tweet from Piers Robinson. Uh, more evidence of the role Bellingcat plays within the censorship industrial complex. Uh, and he's retweeting or quoting a tweet from Eric van der Beek, uh, a, a Netherlands uh, journal, independent journalist, uh, and making the point that uh, the Bellingcat articles were being circulated within 
the uh, Dutch Departments of Defense, Justice and Foreign Affairs by the Dutch Intelligence Agency before that article was eventually being published by Bellingcat itself. Uh, and so uh, the, the, he, the, the implication there is a clear link between, or at least the Bellingcat seems to be operating as some kind of uh, security agency for various governments. And since they're based in the Netherlands at the moment, uh, they, the Netherlands intelligence agencies seem to be getting first dibs on it. But that also, I would imagine, is something we will discuss uh, a little bit more in extra. So let's leave that topic uh, there for now. Um, if you uh, like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you can join us there uh, and uh, your membership very much needed and appreciated. Uh, or you could pick up something from the UK Column shop. That's at shop.ukcolumn.org. Uh, but please do share uh, anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Um, a couple of advertisements now here. At 1 p.m. tomorrow, uh, I have done an interview on uh, the net on net zero and, and energy policy and the way and net zero energy schemes uh, with Steve Gorham, uh, an author and campaigner on this topic. Uh, at 1 p.m. UKcolumn.org/live if you want to watch that live, and it'll be up on the website uh, following that. Uh, a reminder that on Sunday. Uh, we are hosting on behalf of uh, International Center for 9-11 Justice, uh, a symposium, short symposium. Uh, the main speaker is uh, Daniela Ganser. It's really looking at uh, all the post 9-11 uh, efforts that have been justified by 9-11 itself uh, as, the, as the West has pushed out its war uh, agenda uh, internationally. So other speakers include Richard Falk, Elizabeth Woodworth um, and Marilyn Languas. And uh, of course, uh, Pierce Robinson will be hosting that. Uh, so do join us at that. It begins at 6 p.m. this coming Sunday. Uh, and a final reminder, or not a final reminder, because we'll do that on Friday, but a, another reminder that uh, Andrew Bridgen is asking everybody to lobby their MPs to attend uh, a meeting that he is hosting in Portcullis House on Monday, uh, the 4th of December. And I believe that begins at 5 p.m. Uh, you can find more information at saveoursovereignty.co.uk, including a template letter that you might send to your MP. And that's that for the ad break. Now, uh, Charles, let's move on to farming. Farming and the production of food, specifically the often tempestuous relationship between farmers, food producers, and the distributors or the supermarkets. And this is prompted by a story in Farmers Weekly, which... Uh, reports that uh, a petition, an online petition, has now hit over 100,000 signatures and therefore can trigger a parliamentary debate. Specifically, this is to do with the what's called the Groceries Supply Code of Practice. And the petition in nature really seeks to allow retailers, or, or sorry, enforce retailers to buy what they agreed to buy, to pay what they agreed to pay and to pay on time. So just to look at the background to this and why it's come about, the petition states that uh, almost half of a panel of 100 UK fruit and veg farmers fear they will have had to give up their farm within the next 12 months. And many raised concerns about the behavior of supermarkets with 69% agreeing that tougher regulations are required to redress the imbalance of power between farmers, processors, and the supermarkets. So how's this been dealt with so far in the UK? 
obviously it's a topic that's been talked about for years without much action. There's been a small amount of protest in recent weeks. Uh, in October, a couple of distribution centres were blocked by uh, farmers, which I'll just bring on screen now. You can see um, the sort of slogan there, like food, need farmers, obviously seems like a fairly obvious statement to make. But the upshot of this and the, the campaign is being run by something called the Fair to Farmers Charter, which has five sourcing principles. So we'll just take a quick look at those to see what they are and what ground needs to shift to make the situation better for farmers. So they want to force the, uh, the distributors, the supermarkets to buy what you committed to buy, to pay on time, to commit for the long term, to agree on fair specifications and to pay what you agreed to pay. So it's clear from that statement that that's obviously not the case at the moment, whereas it should be. And there is an instrument that's supposed to deal with this. So we'll look at that now. There is a body or at least uh, an individual in place, the Groceries Code Adjudicator, and they produce an annual report and account. So we'll look at the, some of the detail from 22 to 23. Uh, and in it, we find out that the top two issues that concern suppliers continue to be delay in payments, 15%, and forecasting, 12%. So essentially, the farmers are struggling enormously with cash flow and just the uh, availability of uh, the sort of con contractual nature of the, of the business they're trying to undertake with the distributors and often being left with stock that they can't get rid of or gets refused. Uh, and there are all sorts of other issues that, that are manifesting themselves. So from the, from the report, there are several graphs that are supposed to illustrate the current situation. One that they're quite keen to put across is the suggestion that there is a downward trend in reporting of particular issues. Now, of course, statistics being what they are, there could be any number of reasons for this, not least that uh, farmers may have lost faith in the very system that they're reporting to. There may be, in a way, a fear of repercussions from the distributors that they deal with um, and, and other issues related to technology or, or various other considerations. There's one other big factor which deserves a discussion and further investigation because one big change in the industry in terms of the direction of travel is that the suppliers that already exist, or sorry, the distributors have been joined in the marketplace by Amazon. So we'll just look now at a few of the, a few of the charts which give an impression of how Amazon is perceived by the suppliers it deals with. The red arrow there points to Amazon having a much, much lower score in terms of positive perception of overall retailer code compliance. The next chart says that, well, it states suppliers that agree retailers conduct, sorry, conduct the trading relationship fairly in good faith and without duress. Again, on the, on the right hand side of the chart, uh, Amazon way down at 33% below the next, uh, which is little at 58%. And then finally, the suppliers perception of change in retailer practice in the past year. Okay, we bear in mind that Amazon has only been in this game for a year, but nonetheless, its score is much, much lower than any of the other, in, other businesses within the industry. So what recourse do 
the farmers have? Who can they go to in order to deal with the situation? And we go back to the adjudicator. So what can the adjudicator do if indeed the code has been broken? So it says that the adjudicator can make recommendations, require retailers to publish details of any breach, and in the most serious cases, impose a fine. Well, we then go on to find out that the power to fine a retailer goes up to a value of 1% of its UK turnover, and also that it has only carried out two investigations since its inception some years ago, the first into Tesco in 2015 and the second into the co-op in 2018. So go back to the, the direction of travel. Tesco previously was the biggest player in the game with a market capital of about 25 billion. Amazon's market capital is reckoned to be about 1.5 trillion. So the suggestion that in effect a one-man band outfit in the form of the grocery, groceries code adjudicator may be able to affect significant change seems somewhat fanciful. We'll just go back to the originator of the petition itself, a man called Guy Singh Watson, who may be a familiar name to viewers and listeners, as he, he's created the Riverford brand, which of course deals directly with the consumer. So his point is really that he is walking proof of the way in which this entire mechanism can be got around by dealing directly with the customer. And so therefore, if, if this is something that is of interest to you, first of all, I would, I would recommend that you go and look up the petition. But also, if you happen to live near farmers that you know are struggling, then open the conversation with them and see how far you can take it in terms of dealing directly with them. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, we'll move back to uh, sort of international issues now. And uh, David Cameron, of course, the new foreign secretary, has been over in Brussels for the NATO foreign ministers meeting yesterday and today. Uh, there he is, if you can see him, standing beside uh, Anthony Blinken. Uh, and, uh, well, don't they look like a motley crew? But anyway, uh, this is basically what he was saying. We need Sweden now. So Cameron wants uh, Sweden uh, in the uh, in NATO straight away uh, as really something that needs to happen urgently. Uh, but their main thing was Ukraine. Uh, they were absolutely wanting to drum up more business uh, for Ukraine, uh, but also strengthening Euro-Atlantic security is what they claimed. Uh, so anyway, at the same time, at the same meeting on the sidelines uh, was a meeting of uh, uh, the joint uh the uh, JEF and uh, they, uh, the Joint Expeditionary Force, sorry, uh, and they have decided to hold an, ac uh, an activity, what they're calling an activity. Uh, they're calling it uh, a, a critical, so protecting pr critical infrastructure. Uh, they're calling it um, a critical un uh, underwater infrastructure in the region, uh, in the Baltic, of course, because, of course, we didn't, uh, we weren't involved in blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline at all. And so we've now got to get the JEF out there to make sure that we can protect everything in the Baltic. Uh, but this uh, is uh, all about protecting all kinds of infrastructure in the Baltic. And this is going to take place between the 1st and the 15th of December. And it's going to complement NATO's ongoing activities in the Baltic Sea. The question is, are they protecting stuff or are they carrying out military operations uh, under the guise of this kind of protection? Uh, that remains to be seen. But look, the, the JEF has developed what they're calling a series of response options. And this is the first one of those response options that they've uh, actually implemented. Uh, and we'll keep an eye on what they do in, in the not too distant future. Uh, but coming back to the NATO uh, conference, the foreign ministers conference, uh, Jens Stoltenberg held a press conference following that, 
And I just wanted to play out a few seconds of what he had to say. Oh, okay. So I do apologize. We don't have that uh, little bit of video. But uh, anyway, the point here is at the very end of that, uh, he very much was making, uh, stating that uh, the NATO is about to expand into, uh, sorry, Ukraine is about to join NATO. Ukraine is closer to NATO than ever before, was what he said. Uh, so uh, I want to highlight this article from the UK Column uh, website. And NATO chief confirms Russia's account of Ukraine intervention amid an escalation of surrendering Ukrainian soldiers is by Christopher Hell. It was published on the 15th of this month. Uh, and, uh, you know, what Stoltenberg said in the press conference basically about expansion of NATO and, uh, and uh, Ukraine joining NATO should be seen in the context of this quote from a couple of weeks ago, where he said the background was that President Putin declared in the autumn of 2021 and actually sent a draft treaty. Uh, that they wanted NATO to sign, to promise no more NATO enlargement. Uh, that was what he sent us, and that was a precondition for not invading Ukraine. Uh, of course, we didn't sign that. The opposite happened. He wanted us to sign a promise never to enlarge NATO. He wanted us to remove our military infrastructure. How dare he? He wanted us to remove our military infrastructure in all allies that have joined NATO since 1997, uh, meaning half of NATO, all the Central and Eastern Europe, uh, uh, we should remove NATO from that part of our alliance, introducing some kind of A and B or second class mem membership. We rejected that. So he went to war to prevent NATO, more NATO close to his borders. So uh, the claim here was, or at least the, the, uh, the assessment of this, uh, Charles, I don't know if you've got an opinion on this, but it seems to me that the number of deaths that we have seen in Ukraine since the war started could have been prevented if NATO had simply entered into a negotiation at that point rather than uh, simply, you know, tearing up the proposal from Russia and telling Putin to go away. Absolutely. But I, I think it's really it's this sort of extension of a theme that's been running since since 1990. And uh, NATO is seemingly unable to see that um, through actions exactly like this, that, that it's, can it quite legitimately be viewed as provocation by, by Russia. But uh, unfortunately, that never seems to quite sink in. Uh, indeed. I just wanted to uh, end by uh, highlighting the new Dreadnought class uh, submarines uh, and make a, a quick point about this because uh, £121 million, pounds, uh, a new contract, two new contracts, in fact, have now just been awarded to uh, Babcock related to the Dreadnought class uh, builds. Uh, and this is apparently, according to the British government, going to support 250 jobs. Uh, these two contracts uh, have been awarded to Babcock, as I say. Uh, and the first is 66 million that's been uh, awarded to provide in-service submarine support expertise uh, in to de the development of the Dreadnought class submarines uh, and an additional another 55 million uh, contract uh, via BAE systems for weapon handling and uh, launch systems and submerged single ejector equipment for boats, uh, two to four of the Dreadnought cl class. But I just wanted to make the point that in the meantime, uh, in uh, Devonport uh, in Plymouth, uh, we have a whole, uh, I think, believe 10 or 11 nuclear submarines, older nuclear submarines being in the process of be being de decommissioned that are sitting there with fully fueled up uh, and the decommissioning project is effectively stalled. So let's just, uh, this is from Navy Lookout project. This is from uh, February 2022 project to dismantle ex-Royal Navy nuclear submarines inches forward. It hasn't inched forward really at all. Uh, so let's just bring the uh, 
the names of the submarines on screen. So there are still 10 that are fully fueled sitting at Devonport. And of course, it's only uh, a few weeks uh, uh, since, or a couple of months rather, since uh, the BBC had this headline, minor leak at nuclear submarine dock. And people have been warning for quite some time that as these uh, these boats uh, sit in dock uh, rotting, uh, that basically they, it's an accident waiting to happen. So I just wonder about Babcock continuing to get, uh, you know, Huge numbers of uh, huge numbers and millions of uh, pounds of uh, defence contracts, while this project uh, continues to languish effectively, and maybe uh, we we need to see some movement on it. Uh, now, just very quickly, uh, I want to get Vanessa's comment on this uh, because this is uh, James Karaoke at the uh, 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 UN Security Council or the UN General Assembly. Rather, he's speaking about the Security Council uh, and talking about Security Council reform, he said that since we last debated the need for Security Council reform here in the General Assembly, we've grappled with increasing conflict around the world, the impact of Russia's illegal war. Uh, we believe permanent African representation on the Council is long overdue, and we support new permanent seats for India, Germany, Japan, and Brazil. Uh, and he said, we also support an expansion of the non-permanent ca uh, category of membership, taking the total Council membership into the mid-20s. Uh, President, since the General Assembly last met on this topic, we reaffirm our position regarding the use of the veto. And this is really the key point, because this is why Britain is pushing so hard for reform, so-called reform of the Security Council. It's the use of the veto by China and Russia in particular. Uh, and he said, uh, for our own part, the United Kingdom has not exercised our right to use the veto since 1989. We remain committed to not vote. Uh, sorry, we remain committed not to vote against a credible draft resolution to prevent or end a mass atrocity, and we encourage all states to join us. And the hypocrisy here is off the charts as usual, because of course, although they didn't vote against the recent uh, 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 motions in the Security Council uh, with respect to Gaza, they did abstain, and they certainly did nothing to prevent the United States using its veto. veto. Uh, they're quite happy for the U United States to use its veto when it suits, but they're never happy, Vanessa, for Russia or China to use theirs. Well, that's because basically um, everything that the UN Security Council is um, endorsing is in the favour of France, uh, the US and the UK. So they basically have no reason to use a veto, whereas Russia and China that are pushing back against the neo-colonialist projects, whether it's in Syria or elsewhere, do have a need to use the veto. I mean, it's it's kind of you know, UN Security Council for dummies. It's incredible yes. that they think this argument can can even gather traction. It's unbelievable. Yes, but sticking with uh, the UN General <laughs> Assembly, uh, we need to remind ourselves of uh, yeah. Netanyahu's speech recently. Yeah, so this was on the 22nd of September. I'd like to just play it again, just to start off uh, what I'm talking about. A few years ago, I stood here with a red marker to show the, the curse, a great curse, the curse of a nuclear Iran. But today, today I bring this marker to show a great blessing, the blessing of a new Middle East between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and our other neighbors. We will not only bring down barriers between Israel and our neighbors, will build a new corridor of peace and prosperity that connects Asia through the UAE, Saudi Arabia, 
Jordan, Israel, to Europe. This is an extraordinary change, a monumental change, another pivot of history. But I also believe that we must not give the Palestinians a veto over new peace treaties with Arab states. Sanctions must be snapped back. And above all, above all, Iran must face a credible nuclear threat. <laughs> so um, what I wanted to talk about today, um, Mike, you mentioned the sabotage of Nord Stream. Um, and I believe uh, after listening to Robert Kennedy Jr. speaking about Israel and the fact that it is their bulwark basically in the Middle East and preventing um, the rise of the BRICS countries and in particular Russia and China, and that includes the Belt and Road Initiative, the Gaza situation or the Palestine situation is about many things, but I think part of it is about securing monopoly for the US and their allies over um, energy and resource transport and supply, particularly to Europe. So what is he talking about here? In my opinion, he's talking about the Indian economic corridor going from Mumbai through uh, Dubai, Riyadh, Al Haditha, Haifa, of course, in the occupied territories, um, to Piraeus. Now, Piraeus is interesting in Greece. We've spoken about this before, the fact that actually China has substantial investment uh, in Piraeus and, of course, in uh, Haifa. So what is this all about? If we look at the next slide, it shows basically uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman al Saud, uh, US President Joe Biden, Indian Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi on the day of the G20 summit in New Delhi, India, September the 9th, 2023, so about 10 days or so before Netanyahu's uh, UNGA uh, uh, speech. If we look at an article in uh, the Indian um, uh, media, The Week, uh, this is, I think, dated the 24th uh, of September, so two days after, a passage for India, the week reports from Israel's Haifa port, the corridor, so they're talking about this Indian economic corridor, bypassing the Suez Canal could change trade dynamics in the region. I think this is more viable than the Ben-Gurion Canal. Having looked at that, it's, it's met with quite a few obstacles in the past. So I think this is the more likely um, strategic plan. Now, if we look now at, um, this is basically the Levant Basin, which you can see runs from the north of Syria down to uh, basically to Egypt, encompassing Lebanon and occupied Palestinian territories, including Gaza. Um, the Oslo Accord in 1995, so the second Oslo Accord, gave the Palestinian Authority maritime jurisdiction up to 20 nautical miles from the coast of Gaza. In 1999, a 25-year contract, which is up this year, or sorry, in 2024, with British Gas Group and the PA um, uh, to, to, for gas exploration off the coast of Palestine. The Gaza Marine is one trillion cubic feet of natural gas. And that was discovered basically 19 miles, so within that region and then under the control of the Palestinian Authority um, in 1999. The whole Levant Basin 
is 122 trillion cubic meters. Since 2007, of course, um, with the Israeli blockade of Gaza, Israel controls the offshore gas reserves. So Gaza has had absolutely no benefit from this discovery of natural gas. It's also worth mentioning that Israel has control over the Medjed oil and gas field located inside the occupied West Bank territory. So I'm going to have a look, quick look at this. This is the Belt and Road Initiative. And you can see if you go to the next uh, slide, I'll zoom in a little bit on that central area. You can see the ports of Latakia, Tartus, um, Tripoli, Beirut, and then going down to where I've marked the port of, of Haifa, which is um, pivotal to the Indian economic corridor. Now, Latakia, we'll talk about in a second. Tartus, of course, is pretty much under the control of the Russians. Tripoli is under the control of British intelligence, largely in northern Lebanon. Beirut, we know in 2020 in August, was uh, blown up and is no longer operational. And that, of course, leaves Haifa. So let's have a look at what I was talking about regarding Latakia. I couldn't find a, a better map to show um, the M4 highway that crosses from the northeast of Syria and all those areas that are under the control of the United States, occupying forces, their various proxies, Turkey and the Turkish US proxies in the northwest that you can see there in Idlib, that means fundamentally that at the moment, the area north of the M4 um, heading towards Latakia in that northwest section is effectively under the control of Erdogan and Turkey through its various pro proxy militia that control northwest Idlib. So Latakia at the moment is also out of use. Um, if we move on also, I'll show, um, sorry, I, actually I missed one of the maps, but the central area of Syria, of course, is recently under attack by the ISIS proxies being directed um, by the United States and their allies to take control again of, of the gas fields in central Syria to the east of Homs. So there is a general strategy right now to prevent Belt and Road Initiative in particular, and again, remember um, what Robert Kennedy said in his statement about how useful Israel is precisely for doing this. In 2022, in October, so a year before Netanyahu's speech, Al Monitor um, obtained information from Palestinian and Egyptian officials about the success of Egyptian mediation in pushing Israel to allow the start of extracting natural gas off the coast of the Gaza Strip. And it's notable that Egypt has been, while, while um, ostensibly protesting um, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from Gaza into the Sinai, it has also been instrumental in preventing humanitarian aid entering Gaza during the last six weeks and also allowing people out of Gaza for um, uh, humanitarian aid and hospital aid inside Egypt itself. This was an article very recently. Um, U.S. to push Israel on allowing Gaza offshore gas reserves to revitalize Palestinian economy. I will blatantly say that that is a lie. If we move on to the next slide of the article. Um, so this was on November the 20th, 2023. Amos uh, Hochstein, U.S. President Joe Biden's energy security advisor, is currently visiting Israel to discuss preventing 
a second front from opening between Israel and Lebanon amid ongoing clashes with Hezbollah, as well as potential economic revitalization plans for Gaza centered around undeveloped offshore natural gas fields. Again, I will call that out as, as absolute bunkum. They're securing um, the north of Gaza and even now central and southern Gaza in order to um, secure the exploration rights for Gaza's gas field and, and actually the entire Levant gas field. Hochstein was most recently in Bahrain where he discussed the opportunity to develop offshore gas fields on behalf of the Palestinians as part of plans for post-war Gaza that we know don't involve Palestinians at all. And of course, Bahrain has been very vocal in condemning Hamas. I can't think why. Saudi Arabia, of course, Egypt and Bahrain will be strategic partners uh, in the economic corridor. Um, and of course, this is one of the fears. This is the article in the Indian Express. Um, as Israel-Hamas conflict again spun as Israel-Hamas as rather than Israel-Arab or Israel-Palestinian um, gets deadlier, what happens to the India-Europe economic corridor? So obviously they're expressing fears that the conflict could um, interfere with their plans for uh, ethnically cleansing Gaza and securing those offshore gas exploration rights. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you very much for that. That was very interesting. Now, uh, King's speech uh, was Charles was uh, a couple of weeks ago. We did mention it, and we mentioned that one of the things on that was a Holocaust memorial bill. Um, we didn't know the detail of it now, but we do now. Indeed, there is quite a considerable amount of detail, and of course, the way it's been presented, or at least the way it was alluded to in the King's speech, doesn't really give any indication of the background and the controversy which has surrounded it and indeed should surround it. So we'll just look at the text from the King's speech itself. And uh, it's a brief reference. My government is committed to tackling anti-Semitism and ensuring that the Holocaust is never forgotten. A bill will progress the construction of a national Holocaust memorial and learning centre in Victoria Tower Gardens. So it may not surprise viewers and listeners to learn that the bill, which is now up on screen, makes provision for expenditure by the Secretary of State and the removal of restrictions in respect of certain land for or in connection with the construction of such memorial. Now, this bill was introduced by Michael Gove, who is a well-known supporter of Israel and has been continuing to, in effect, bang the drum for much closer relationship between the UK and Israel. Now, the detail on this restriction in relation to certain land states that Section 8 of the London County Council Improvements Act 1900 does not prevent, restrict or otherwise affect the carrying out of any of the activities described, which are basically the construction of the memorial. Now, the reason that that is significant is that they don't go on and clarify the situation at all or refer to what those restrictions might have meant in terms of the 1900 bit of statute. I'll just show you on the map where we're talking about, and this is just to the south of the Palace of Westminster, an area known as the Victoria Tower Garden. So the way it's been presented is, in effect, as a, as a very new idea, and indeed, there's a government department responsible for it, the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation, which describes that it will stand as a reminder of the horrors of the past 
And in particular, concerning the location, it says the view of Parliament from the memorial will serve as a permanent reminder that political decisions have far-reaching consequences. Well, how ironic. Um, that is absolutely true, but not probably in the manner that they intended, because in actual fact, this is not a new plan. It goes back some years and has already caused an awful lot of controversy. So we'll just have a look at exactly why that is. And it goes back to the original planning application, which was uh, refused by Westminster Council. And that was then uh, appealed by the government. Um, so the Museums Association reports that the then planning minister overturned an earlier decision by Westminster Council. And the the, the issue at stake really is that it's summed up here as being the right idea in the wrong place. So there's no suggestion that the notion of a Holocaust memorial and learning centre is, is an inappropriate thing to place somewhere, but not here. And the reason for that I'll come on to, but these plans go back to David Cameron's time in office in 2016. Uh, designed by a Ghanaian British architect. And it's significant to note that the planning application at the time was opposed by a number of groups, including London Historic Parks and Gardens Trust, which led the challenge, along with Save Victoria Tower Gardens, Westminster City Council, the Thorny Island Society and Baroness Deitch. So not an insignificant number of people who do know what they're talking about. I'll just bring up now the small bit of legislation from 1900, just to illustrate the point that the bill in Parliament at the minute didn't actually refer to, but it refers to the creation of the land after the road to the west was built. And it says that it will be maintained in manner hereinafter, provided for use as a garden open to the public and as an integral part of the existing Victoria Tower garden. Now, again, apart from the fact that having a public space in use as a garden to the south of the Palace of Westminster is desirable and indeed was enshrined in statute that it should be protected. There are other issues at stake. They've not had very much attention in Parliament, but one Conservative MP by the name of Nikki Aiken has picked up on the sensitivities surrounding it. And she said on a debate in Parliament that the Save Victoria Tower Gardens campaign also noted the site's important legal functions and its role in protecting the Palace of Westminster World Heritage Site. We must remember that Victoria Tower Gardens is a Grade 2 listed public park. For this reason, the design of the monument and learning centre matters greatly. Historic England has raised significant concerns about overwhelming the existing monuments. The gardens have notable existing memorials to oppression and emancipation. Rodin's Burgers of Calais the statue of the suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst and the Buxton Memorial to the Abolition of Slavery. So these are significant details that have absolutely not come up in the proposal either during the King's speech or in any of the surrounding debate. But we look now at the statue of Emmeline Pankhurst herself. Um, it, due to her very determined and lengthy efforts, the, the vote was given to women over the age of 30 in 1918. And indeed, her statue there commemorates that event. We then come on to the Buxton Memorial. And again, probably not much known by viewers and listeners, but Thomas Fowle Buxton was a very long serving MP who took on 
the abolition of slavery campaign from Wilberforce in 19, uh, sorry, in 1825, getting it over the line, of course, for the abolition of slavery act in 1833. So to consider that in 10 years time, when the bicentenary of the abolition of slavery is commemorated, it will be asked, well, why has this park been destroyed? And indeed, to just quantify or qualify what I mean, I've just got a couple more points. One is that despite the fact the government is suggesting otherwise, there is actually already a what's called the National Holocaust Centre and Museum in Nottinghamshire. It's been started by a family that were struck very much by um, what they found when they went to Israel on a visit. They call it Beth Shalom, the House of Peace. And they say that it holds two permanent exhibitions, a memorial and reflective space, education and teaching space, beautiful landscape, memorial gardens, and viewing galleries to learn about the Holocaust. So effectively, that sounds very like what's been planned for Victoria Tower Gardens. But of course, it's in Nottinghamshire and not in London. And it's so a point needs to be made about putting this beside Parliament. Uh, there are a couple of artists' impression we'll put on screen now, just to give you an idea of the scale of the proposal, which, as you can see, that the Buxton Memorial's just there on the right-hand side of the monument. As, as the MP Aiken said, it's, it absolutely dwarfs it. The next slide shows the underground space with a, a lady there for scale. It, it would be an absolutely enormous construction. And so unfortunately, what it looks very much like is that the situation in the Middle East is being exploited in order to secure political capital to force through a measure that has absolutely ridden roughshod over the democratic process, both in quashing planning decisions and also overturning court decisions. But more than that, really, it seeks to relegate the uh, pursuit of universal suffrage and indeed the abolition of slavery as being inferior to recognition of the Holocaust. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That is where we will end today. Uh, thank you to Charles and Vanessa for joining us. Uh, if you are a UK call member, we will be back uh, in a few minutes for some extra. Otherwise, we will see you as usual on Friday at 1pm. But don't forget uh, the interview going out live at 1pm uh, tomorrow uh, in the usual places. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.